Isaiah chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 1, says, uh, nevertheless, the gloom. So for all that is spoken of prophetically in chapter 8, you come to 9, and the Lord now talks about the coming invasion of Assyria. So for everything else that they've been dealing with now, the Lord is going to really explain especially this northern invasion and how it's going to uh, take Israel completely captive and it will affect uh, Judah in the south in a very negative way. They're going to experience attack and onslaught from Assyria, um, the real captivity and enslavement will only be currently uh, those ten northern tribes and uh, what they're going to go through there. But in the midst of this, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali afterwards were more heavily oppressed her afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of shadow of death upon them, a light has shined. So you have what is so typical in prophecy where you have that near local fulfillment that's going to take place as Assyria comes down and invades uh, the, the northern lands. Uh, you have here listed uh, Zebulun, Naphtali, so those um, you know, northern areas that are being spoken of. Then it says you know, twofold. This area beyond the Jordan uh, in Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, when you come to Jesus' day, the region of Galilee was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, it was thought to be so uh, sinful and under the influence of the Gentiles that they spoke of it with disdain. The, you know, the, the high educated religious men of Jerusalem would look upon anyone from Galilee as being low, sinful, working class. Uh, that they didn't want much to do with. So they would often refer to Galilee of the Gentiles, whereas Jerusalem of the Jews was sort of their frame of mind. So in this time period, uh, these regions are going to experience that invasion from the north, from Assyria. The reason that they're falling uh, to Assyria uh, first is twofold. One, geographically, it's closer. Uh, two, they have uh, rebelled against the Lord much more blatantly. Uh, the ten northern tribes rejecting David, his bloodline, his children, his kingship, that kingdom, breaking away to become a separate kingdom from what God intended, left them spiritually vulnerable. There are degrees of judgment that we see in the scripture, 
and that the Lord describes. When, when we know blatantly uh, the things of the Lord and we rebel against them, there's a greater punishment that comes with that. It, it might not necessarily be a greater punishment of physical effect, but it's going to be a greater punishment of conscience when when you're going through the pains of experiencing the outcome of your sin and you know my sin has brought this upon me. My rebellion against the Lord has delivered me into these consequences. That's a very serious thing. When someone is ignorant of the hand of the Lord, the teachings of the Lord, the understanding of the Lord's ways, they don't have that pain of conscience. When, we, when we've known the way of the Lord and, and you knew that avoiding a certain path, a certain behavior, was what you should be doing, and then you follow down that path. It's so regrettable. You know, I think of, you know, so many uh, times I've seen people ignore safety warnings. You know, you be on the job with somebody, and they don't want to put the guard down, don't want to wear, you know, the safety glasses, don't want to, you know, do the things that are net. Then when you're suffering the consequences of it, you know, that's always depressing when you've now got something in your eye, and the you know safety glasses were readily at hand and you weren't using them. It's a simple process that they're going to be experiencing this pain. This also has the the far prophetic sense that this is going to be the region that Jesus comes from. You know, the Galilee of the Gentiles, that was the mockery of the Jewish religious leaders when not only Jesus showed up, but these local fishermen. Uh, that, that mockery went on after Jesus had ascended into heaven. You know, they uh, you know, are saying things like that to Peter as he's there in the courtyard and Jesus is being tried. Surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean and your speech betrays you. Uh, you know, your thick back country accent tells us that you're not one of the refined people of the city. You're a country bumpkin and we know it, is what they're saying. You know, you get into the book of Acts and they, you know, the Lord has healed the man in the temple and uh, James and John are now being tried by the religious leaders and they're saying similar things to them and questioning amongst themselves. You know, did they go to your college? Did they go to your college? No, they didn't. And then they remember that they were with Jesus. Galilee of the Gentiles will have a great light shine amongst them. Jesus Christ. You you think about uh, when uh, they were saying that Jesus had come out of Nazareth and they're saying, you know, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, That isn't just a mockery of the land, they're looking at prophetically. Does it tell us anywhere in the scripture that that the prophet, the Messiah, is going to come out of Galilee, out of Nazareth? You know, how, how could that? They miss the point here that the Lord is saying that this great illu- spiritual illumination is going to come out of Galilee. There's something to be said about the way that the Lord works 
with the humble and the simple. There is an established, elite, educated people in our nation and in the world. And people look up to them. They're intimidated by them. God uses the humble. God uses the simple to speak to the world around them. Won't won't they be ashamed? Won't they be filled with regret when the day comes and they realize all of these simple Christian church folk knew all the answers, had the vision of the future and what lies ahead, had they only listened to our voice, had they only followed our message, all the pain that they could have avoided. I'm just having a conversation today about, uh, you know, business. And uh, in particular, this one individual who the Lord keeps blessing uh, as you know, she works amongst so many other people that should be you know, so successful in the same environment. And I pointed out, well, yeah, but, you know, we know this person and they govern themselves according to God's word in that environment. You know, in that, the reason they're successful, the reason that they're experiencing all this, because when they go to work, they're not working for their employer. They're working for Jesus Christ. You know, that, you know, that's not every Christian's attitude, but in this case it is. They go there with the thought of, I'm going to do everything I can to succeed for my master. In this environment, I'm going to be a blessing to him. And as a result, you know, they're all you know, being left in the dust. This, this person is outperforming them. The, the world looks on at, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles, the, the simple people amongst them, you know, you backward thinking Christians, and they have the criticism and the mockery. How, how ashamed, literally the scripture tells us how ashamed they will be when the sky rips open and Jesus Christ steps through. This, this is the great light that we have to shine in this place of shadow and death. It has this local fulfillment of those that are following the Lord and experiencing this invasion of Assyria, but it has the prophetic sense of what lies ahead. It's interesting to me that by the Lord's timing, we're here in chapter 9 at this Christmas season, examining uh, the life of Jesus Christ and the prophecies that are given here regarding the coming of the Messiah. 9 verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Now, a couple of things are transpiring here. Both the Assyrians are rejoicing and in their conquest of Israel and the surrounding nations. But then this breaking of the yoke, and as in the day of Midian, you know, the southern a nation of Judah is experiencing the Lord's deliverance in the process. 
you know, while they're completely afraid currently of the coming invasion of Assyria, God has them well in hand. He's going to protect them, and that's going to go on for some time. They'll eventually fall as uh, Babylon comes in and takes control of the southern nations. But within this small window of time, you have a group of people that are overly concerned about something that the Lord is telling them is going to come to nothing. They're, they're trying to negotiate with their neighbors. Judah is trying to make agreements and trying to protect themselves, and the Lord is going to see them through the circumstances. I think we all know what it's like <clears throat> to worry and fret and have our hearts filled with anxiety, and then when we finally turn ourselves over to the Lord and actually pray and ask for his assistance and wait upon his hand, there's a great joy and relief and deliverance that comes in those moments where we realize that God had us all along. It's interesting how faithless we can act when we take our eyes off from the Lord. I you know, see myself and probably every believer in the experiment that Peter had with trying to walk on the water. When his eyes were fixed upon the Lord, uh, he could seemingly do the impossible. He could step out and he could trust and you know, he could defy, it would seem, even the laws of nature. When he focused on his circumstances, when he looked at the storm that was around him rather than focusing on Jesus Christ. I mean, what was the inspiration in Jesus? Jesus is walking on the water. There isn't another human being that you can look to and say, show me by your example how I can walk. Because if we look at one another, what we're going to see is our human frailty. I'm going to look at you and maybe I'll see you in a good moment or maybe I'll see you in your natural state. Vice versa, as you look at me, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the great illumination that comes from Galilee of the Gentiles, then there is no sinking. There is no falling apart. It's when we remove our vision from there. Now this reference in verse 4 as in the day of Midian, is a reference to Gideon's great victory over Midian in Judges chapter 7. That's a wonderful picture. As, as Gideon is completely surrounded by idolatry within his nation. You know, his own clan, his own people, his father's own house, they're all worshipers of false gods. They've all, as a nation, departed from following the Lord. Gideon has that encounter with the angel of the Lord that says, you've been chosen and you're going to be the leader. And he asks for the signs and there the angel of the Lord delivers those answers to him as the fleece is dry and then the fleece is wet. And then he embarks upon calling the people, right? And tens of thousands come. And the Lord says, it's too many. If you take all of these people into battle, then they get the glory, right? Here, Judah is 
you know, experiencing God's deliverance. It isn't through their strength. It isn't through their prowess. It isn't through their military alliances with other nations. It's God's hand that's delivering them from this moment. You know, Gideon has, you know, a smaller group. And the, he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, still too many. You know, when you go to battle against countless millions of people, countless millions of people, and you've got 300, that is remarkable victory when the Lord, you know, when only the Lord could have the glory in the end, when only God could conquer everything that is around you. What a wonderful thing it is for us to worship that same God and realize that in our own lives, that regardless of how the odds are stacked against us, if we will wait upon the Lord, if we will call out to him, this is the same God that answers my prayers and your prayers. The one that's capable of delivering whole nations through insurmountable odds. It's an unfortunate thing uh, to see the church you know, moving the direction of trying to make itself successful. Rather than just learning more and more with every passing day to know the God of the Scripture, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Just to know Him, to, to be in His presence, to be in prayer, to fall on our face before Him. I mean, we hear these things, we hear these things all the time, but are we as individuals content? Content to, you know, balance our own circumstances? To manipulate everything we can in order to bring our own success about? Or is it a complete surrender? A surrender to God? Allowing Him to work in our... I, I find that very often... When the church talks about you know surrendering to the Lord, really uh, more often than anything is they are surrendering to their own circumstances, their own behavior, their own methods. It has it has little to do with surrendering to God. They've developed a plan. They've developed a method. It's, we have a wonderful heritage in Calvary Chapel. You know Chuck Smith is an excellent example, even though he's in the presence of the Lord now. You know, as part of a denomination, you know, having been part of a denomination and gone to their college and come out and been ordained as a pastor within their denomination, he was in meetings where, you know, if any of you have been in leadership of denominations, they've developed the next year's plan of how they're going to have these competitions in the church they're going to give awards any of you guys uh you know come up in those churches where you know the person in the church who through the summer campaign brings the most guests to church they receive a reward you know this isn't done so much now but there was a time where this was very popular in churches you bring the most guests and you receive what you're brought up in front of the church you know, Sally or Joe brought 25 people to church. And, you know, could any of those 25 stand? And however many are, you know, they stand, everybody applauds, and they give them, you know, whatever trinket they have. 
you know, within that meeting of pastors, they made the decision that whichever pastor had the most people who had been invited by the people from his congregation, he would receive a reward amongst the pastors. And, you know, everybody that was in favor of this was supposed to stand up and Chuck remained in his seat. And uh, because Chuck remained in his seat, a few others who followed Chuck's example stayed in their seat. Well, after the meeting, Chuck got a phone call about, you know, what it meant to submit to the leadership and what it meant to be rebellious and what it was that he needed to do. And that is where he had heard from the Lord to simply teach the word of God verse by verse. To not run any of the man-made schemes. To simply take a book and take the first verse and teach it through to the end. He did that, and in the time that he was in that denomination teaching the Word of God verse by verse, rather than following all of their schemes, and they send out these promotional packages and flyers and banners, posters, and all the stuff they're supposed to put up, just teach the Word. The church doubled in its size. So much so that uh, when it was all done and they'd fiz- finished that fiscal year, they sent him the invitation announcing to him that he had actually won the award. Without having participated in their program, he had won the award. And he had to send them a letter back and explain that he hadn't participated in their program. And they were disgruntled with that, and he left the denomination and began the process of simply teaching the Word of God verse by verse. And that that eventually became Calvary Chapel, that model of trusting the Lord. Now, they promoted their church, and you know they went on the airwaves and preached the gospel and invited people, but they relied upon the Lord to bring those that were being saved. They, they waited on the Lord's deliverance rather than man's deliverance. You know, this reference is as in the day of Midian. This is, this is the victory we need. You guys, as as I look around the nation, as you look around the nation, surely we're coming to the same conclusion. Just as we start to see, oh, there's some change on the horizon, you realize, you know, it's the same thing. There's nothing. There's nothing new under the sun. The politics, the people, the sin of our nation. Where we need to be is on our face before the Lord, cowering in fear for what is to come. Um, the, the grave concern of what lies over our nation. We are, we are more vulnerable and more fragile than we've ever been. You know, people acting like, you know, we're just going to band together and we're going to be... And, uh, it's a foolish prospect. You know, if you think the pendulum is not going to swing back the other direction politically, you're gravely deceived. We are going to see nonsense in this nation like you cannot imagine. It's going to become a fearful place. 
with every passing day. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. The few of us on our face before the Lord calling out to him. May we be that remnant described in the previous chapters. We need the deliverance as in the day of Midian. Where the few, the few that were faithful to the Lord saw the Lord's victory performed amongst the people. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and a fuel of fire. These great destructive battles that would take place and the dead that would be a result of it. The victory that was going to come comes only from the Lord. Now these things, these victories, these burning of the garments that's described here, our victory is in Jesus Christ. You know, what we have, it isn't so much, you know, the earthly sense of things as some apply. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, as, as the world rages on, as the sin rages on, as the deterioration continues at an unprecedented pace, uh, we can humbly in our relationship with the Lord, experience victory. We're such strange creatures in comparison to the rest of the world. When we talk about our fulfillment being in Christ, even within the church, when you talk about the depth of relationship that this church and others like it encourage believers towards this is not the direction that the rest of christianity is going that which calls itself christian you you look around at that which calls itself christian and try to find the difference between non-believers and those who declare themselves as believers and there's not much difference in most churches and most denominations it's remarkable. I having a conversation a few weeks ago with a couple from this church. They were having conversation with another couple and talking about pro-life issues. And their friends were gravely offended. Gravely offended over the fact that as Christians they were insisting that pro-life was the proper Christian view. Their friends are professing Christians that they're arguing with. And in the end, these other people who said they were Christians said that they've been in church all of their lives. They only know other Christians. They don't have any non-Christian friends and they don't know anyone that is not pro-choice. All of the Christians that they know are pro-choice. That, that is that which declares itself to be Christian. In their mind, saying, it's okay to kill our unborn children. This is what declares itself as Christian in our country. A, a people that are gone the way of the world. 
you know, when you when you read all throughout the Old Testament, you might want to write this down, take note of it, go home and look up the phrase that they they made their children to pass through the fire. Made their children to pass through the fire. Made their sons to pass through the fire. They worshipped a God of reproduction. Sexual promiscuity. And because of these pagan forms of worship, there were many unwanted pregnancies. So as an act of worship to Molech, they would take that brand new child just born and they would offer it in the fire to Molech. Kill the child. Offer it up. It was post-birth abortion. We're, we're doing the same thing. Our culture is doing the same thing. Number one, the number one method of abortion in America is saline abortion. Burn the child to death with chemical inside the womb. We're, we're, we're just doing it in a much more modern, sterile, medical manner. you got to understand, listen, move away from the grisly thought of that for a moment and understand this. What was going on in the heart of the people was they desired pleasure and they desired sexual sin and an obvious outcome is unwanted pregnancy so you got to develop a method to deal with the unwanted pregnancy theirs was just a little more primitive than ours it's the same problem it's the same problem we have a culture worldwide that is obsessed with the sexual and Unwanted pregnancy is the result. So you got to get rid of these kids. 1.6 million annually in the U.S. 68 million since 1973. Maybe more, depending on whose numbers you listen to. There, There is <laughs> this year. How about this one, you guys? This year, we're going to crest past the point where there are now more people in retirement age than there are in the workforce. See, the Social Security, people talk about this, right? Oh, the Social Security system was designed, right, so that you pay in and you receive back. It was never designed that way. It was never designed that way, right? We hadn't been paying in. We didn't tell those people that we're going to receive Social Security that first year. You guys are going to have to wait. You didn't pay in. The system didn't exist before. This is the first year we're doing it. So, stinks to be you. We're going to have to wait until the people who are paying in right now finally retire, and then they'll be able to collect their own money. That's not how it works. It's never worked that way. How the system was designed is when we instituted it, the people who were working were paying the people that were retiring. That's how, that's how it was designed. That's why it doesn't work. So now you get to the point where there's more people retired than there are working. 
See, the system was designed when the average household size was eight, eight children per family. We're at we're at two point we're at one point eight right now per family, one point eight children. We can't sustain this. You know, people talking about oh, it's you know the mismanagement of the government. They didn't invest properly. They didn't. No, 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 no. No, we we have we have stopped. We have stopped reproducing. Families have abandoned. God's method of procreation. They have they have abandoned family, right? We're right now. I, I read a thing last week that said the divorce rates actually exceeded fifty five percent. Fifty five percent. Last I read it was fifty one percent. Now we're at fifty five. I'm not sure how accurate the numbers are. You guys, our nation. It has turned its back on God, and we are experiencing its downfall. When we're sitting here reading this, we, God's people, standing up in the midst of it and declaring God's word, read again Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we will stand up before the world, and declare this like like you know Gideon, you guys. We're we're gonna look foolish. We're gonna be the small number. We're gonna be the little tiny group that's standing in the midst saying, "Join us." There is victory in Christ. We're not gonna be left standing here foolish with our hat in our hand. How far away is Christ's return right now? Literally, literally, it could be right now. The, Lo the Lord is going to fulfill his word. And those of us that have put our trust in him and are waiting upon him, we will not be ashamed. We will not be ashamed. The world is going to feel foolish to a much larger degree than we can imagine. Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is born is given. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 says that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now there are a couple of things I want to talk about and have us think about right there. The first of which is seemingly Jesus Christ could have come in any form that he wanted to. Right? He could have come as a perfect angel. He could have come as, you know, a perfect man like Adam. Instead, he arrives in the most vulnerable state possible as an infant child. He didn't just appear on the scene. He didn't just show up. He subjected himself to the human race, to the care of a teenage girl, Mary. That's remarkable, remarkable that the creator of all things allowed himself to become a child in this way. Now with that, pausing the thought for a moment, I want to be clear that this is the only time in all of eternity that anything like this has taken place. 
There, there isn't a large group of souls in heaven that God takes one of them and puts them inside a human being and allows them to exist on earth. We don't exist previous to coming here. Just doctrinally, I want us to understand that. There are those within Christianity even who have adopted the thinking of Eastern mystics that like we were angels or we were souls and we were other beings and we came here and this is our human existence. That's not what the scripture teaches. Scripture knows nothing of that. We're, we're very, very clearly represented in the scripture as not existing prior to becoming human beings. Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ existed prior to. And he makes those statements repeatedly. Talking about, you know, for instance, no one has seen the Father. No one has been in heaven. No one has known him except for me. I alone am coming here and declaring these things to you. That's very significant when you examine the other false religions of the world. Because essentially they're saying their ascended masters existed previous to coming to earth. And they came here to declare to us heavenly things. That's false. Only Jesus Christ has done this, where he came into existence. He became a child, became a son, given to us. Look, you've looked around the world enough. You've been in Walmart enough times to know that this was risky business. Allowing yourself to become an infant child and be turned over to the human race. I, I mean, ha have you seen some of the nonsense that human beings do all around you? Isn't it incredible? It's, uh, it's just amazing. Amazing. I, I stopped my truck and dumped it into reverse and smoked the tires backwards to literally to get out of the way of the guy who is trying to tune his radio, and back up simultaneously without looking anywhere. He's looking straight ahead, and he's got his car in reverse, and his hands are down here, and he's just backing straight out. These people get to vote. Jesus Christ looked down at humanity and allowed himself to become a child in the care of a human being. That's remarkable. Remarkable. You gotta you gotta hold Mary in high regard. Read again uh, the account in Luke. Read again the things that she has to say. See her dozens of times quoting the Old Testament in just a matter of verses. She knew the word of God. She was steeped in the word of God. She was surrendered to God. God comes and says, you're going to become pregnant. You're going to have a child. In a culture that this potentially could have meant she was going to be stoned to death. It didn't happen much at all by this time. But it could have potentially happened. And she, without hesitation, says, let it be unto me as you have said. Right? We, we 
hear the call of the Lord in our lives to simply be more obedient in our circumstances, right? With our spouse, with our children, with our job. And when we begin to consider what that's going to cost us, we whine about, I don't know if I'm ready for that, Lord. Here is a young woman who understood this was going to mean social rejection. Her family was probably going to disown her, right? Her, her spouse-to-be, her engaged husband, she knew was almost certainly going to reject her. He did, but then upon the Lord's assurance, he embraced her and married her. Looking, looking at the consequence of what was coming to her, she said without, without hesitation, let it be to me as you have said. Wonderful example. You know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He remains eternally human. That's that's a thought to think about. He is he is human for the rest of eternity. How remarkable is that? Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-five, Stephen is being stoned to death, and he says, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, see, the heavens are open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In heaven, in eternity, Jesus Christ is still a human. He's fully God and fully human. Very difficult to explain or understand. Remarkable that he took on flesh, humbled himself to our state. Verse 6, following, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. Now, people want to argue with that. Right now, every single form of government on earth is some degree of failed human experiment. The one that stands out above all is America. Now, right now, you're hearing a lot of things. You know, you listen to Howard Zinn, and he's rewritten American history. I mean, you know, think of America now. Many of us might even think of America as the worst nation that's ever existed, the most cruel nation that's ever been on planet Earth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. America is still the shining city on a hill. The, the whole world should look to us and our historic example. If you, want, if you want to see God's success in men forming human government, America without question is without equal. And that's not just an American's interpretation. You know, people point at slavery. Oh, American slavery. Really? American slavery was actually Muslim slavery, by the way. The Muslims were the ones who were invading Africa, taking the captives and shipping them over here. And it was a European tradition. The question is, who brought slavery to an end? It was America. It was America. You, you look at every single advancement. Hey, uh, women and uh, the mistreatment here. Uh, really? 
Who is it that has advanced the rights of women more than any nation in the world, even to this day, America? Greatly flawed? Without question. There's no question of the flaws that are in place. Oh, the oppression of other nations. False. Absolutely false. It, 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 listen, go back historically and just take America out of every armed conflict that has ever occurred on planet Earth. This would be an entirely different planet without American history. That is because of the worship of Jesus Christ. This isn't me preaching American patriotism. This is me preaching Jesus Christ. The government upon his shoulders, this government rests upon his shoulders. Every single thing you see that is good and positive of the nations that have ever existed is derived from Jesus Christ. There might not be a direct thread where you could look at a particular government and say, well, based upon the teachings of Jesus Christ, that nation behaved itself in this way. What you can say is that behavior, which is good, right, noble, beneficial within that nation, is also found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to rule the world. You have to think about morality in an entirely different light. Why do we even say it's wrong to lie? Why do we say that? Why, why, why do we say it's wrong to lie? Because God said it's wrong to lie. That's the only reason. Right? If we're cavemen who've just developed along through the process of evolution, then lying is actually quite beneficial. Really. No, no, no. I mean, let's just let's let's just take God as John Lennon wanted us to do. Just imagine there's no God for a minute, right? So I now don't have to be accountable to God, and this is the only life I have to live. Oh, the best way to function on planet Earth is not think about anybody but me. Kill everybody else that opposes me. Rise to the top. Ruin everyone else. Just take the approach of being a tyrant, right? Because if there's no accountability on the other end, if I don't have to die and stand in judgment before the living God, if this is the only existence, then what God has set out as rules and laws, the restriction that's there, it doesn't benefit the individual the way that the individual would like to experience it. The collective whole, God alone designed that. The selflessness of God is what law is built upon. That, that's how morality is constructed, is through the selflessness of God, the love of others. Government rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Government rests upon the so All government rests upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The fact that morality is derived, that the Ten Commandments, it's, it's been said that without all of them, none of them stand. You have to have the entire package. It's an interesting study. You have to have the entire package. God is the only one 
who has formulated that and given it to the human race. Government rests upon his shoulders, right? Think about Jesus Christ. There in that moment with that centurion who said, you don't need to come to my house. You say the word and it'll be done. I understand what authority is. Think about this. Jesus Christ stops everything and says to everyone, pay attention to that right there. I have not seen faith even in all of Israel like that. Someone who understands authority. Authority equals government. Government rests upon Jesus Christ's shoulders. We're in this culture right now that's trying to shed. Have you have you seen some of these interviews with the young people of our culture who are anarchists? You know, the these, you know, Antifa crowd, and they, they want to get rid of government, they want to get rid of the authorities. And you you ask them, like, uh, who's gonna be in charge when it's all done? And they'll say, no one. When does that ever work? If you remove all authorities and all government so that everyone's equal, everybody in this room, I don't even have to ask, you think about it for a few seconds, maybe some of us have to think of a few minutes, but what's going to happen if you get rid of government and police, for, right? The most tyrannical are going to become the leaders. The most violent amongst us are going to be the ones who rise up and take over. Law, order, government, that's God's plan. You know, right now, people looking around the world and, and they're listening to our enemy who's saying, get rid of government, get rid of order, get rid of the police. So I looked up, all the police are evil. Nothing can be farther from the truth. These people are laying their lives on the line every day. You know what? Every single passing day, you thank God all the more for the police officers that serve around you. Would any of you like to become police officers right now? Good grief, man. I mean, you just pull somebody over and they act belligerent and film you and go home and edit that and spill it all over Facebook. And the next thing you know, you're the one that's being questioned about everything. You were just out there doing your job, trying to protect and serve. And now, now you're being sued. And people are, people are threatening your family and your safety. Who, who would want to? It's a noble creature that will step out every single day and put that uniform on and go protect the rest of us. Jesus Christ is the foundation of government. R law, order, rule of government, that all rests upon Jesus Christ. You know, this, this idea you know, that you know, the sociologists teach in, in the colleges of, oh, you know, law and order, that, that was just a natural consequence of evolution. People would have automatically come to that. No, they would not have. No. The tyrants wouldn't have allowed it. God, intervening on humans' behalf, gave us law and government. Gave it to us. More than every, you know, it's it's remarkable to look around the world right now and see how many governments 
actually point at Moses as the source of the foundation for their government. All through Europe, all through the Middle East, all through North and South America, Moses, the lawgiver, is the one who is the foundation of government. Jesus Christ is the author of that law. You know, people take this the wrong direction. They read that and they think, you know, the government will be upon his shoulders and they think, oh, well, maybe someday he'll come, he'll rule. No, right now. To the degree that it's spun out of control, to the degree that it's become ungodly and lawless, that's because those cultures are rejecting Jesus Christ. To whatever degree it is in place and it's providing health and security for us, that's because of Jesus Christ. The lawgiver, the word himself. So, the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, comma. Commonly, that's spilled out as wonderful counselor. And certainly he's a wonderful counselor, but he's wonderful. Above anything else, he's wonderful. You think about it. The world curses his name, hates him, despises him. What is he? He's wonderful. He's the prince of life. What, what does the world want? It wants death. You give them the choice, choice what does it choose? It chooses the murderous thief and insurrectionist Barabbas rejects the Prince of Life. Jesus Christ is wonderful. Counselor, second. Wow, does the world need a counselor right now? Do men and women need counselors? Guidance, insight. You know, when you're reading the writings of Peter and he tells us that in Jesus Christ is contained everything we need regarding life and godliness. That covers all the bases. What do you need to know? What do you need to know about? It's in the Word of God. Well, no, I've had to go see my counselor and I've had to go see my psychologist for some time because I'm filled with you know depression. Filled with depression. And then do we know that Proverbs tells us that anxiety in the heart produces depression? The Word of God says that. Anxiety in the heart, right? It also tells us, be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Oh, I can't be thankful. You don't know what a mess my life is. No, you can be thankful. Because James told us, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. We can all gain the wisdom that we need. We need to believe and not doubt. He is a wonderful counselor. If we will listen to him. Mighty God. So many of the cults miss that. This child that's going to be given is going to be known as Mighty God. Capital G, not lowercase, right? Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he changes it, lowercase g. Jesus is not God in his book. They don't read from the Bible, right? We mistakenly say that. Oh, in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, that's not the Bible, right? That's a comic book written by men 
written by a man, Charles James Russell. Well, in the Muslim Bible, wait a second, the Muslims don't have a Bible. They have the Quran. Right? It, it doesn't have the, anywhere near the same. Oh, yes, it does. It's a message of peace. Peace in the Quran. War and death to all of its enemies is what you're going to find written in the Quran. Peace is mentioned one time, one time. Whereas Muslims, they are told that they are allowed to make peace with their enemies for up to 10 years so that they might wet the edge of their sword with their blood. The word of God alone, his writing, our God, mighty God. Notice this, of the son who is going to be given, he will be called the everlasting father. Because the son and the father are one. The Trinity is real. It was Martin Luther that said, if you try to understand it, you could lose your mind. Lose the Trinity, and you could lose your salvation. I don't know how accurate he is in that thought, but it's an essential doctrine. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. They are each their own individual person, and yet they are one. How to explain a concept like that? Your spirit is not your body, and yet they are one. And apparently you have a soul and a spirit. How does that work? Well, you can go home and let yourself twist on that for now until eternity. Right? The evidence is in your death. Because, as C.S. Lewis said, the ghost that runs the machine disappears. The personality inside goes away and the body remains here to decompose. We are created in God's image. Here, he will be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now, when you hear in the scripture as... Jesus arrives, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That is actually peace on earth toward men of goodwill. Right? It doesn't mean that peace will be on earth for all men. That's not going to occur until Jesus Christ comes, instead of his kingdom and rules on this earth. Then he will enforce peace. Enforce it. There will be those that oppose him. And the scripture says he will dash them to pieces with a rod of iron, the scepter that is in his hands. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't want to be on the receiving end. I'm simply going to obey him to the best of my ability. He will be the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Right? Again, this argument about, well, where did he set up a kingdom? In my heart, in your heart, right? Jesus said, if my kingdom had been of this world, I would have been able to call my soldiers, essentially my angels, and they would have defended me. The increase of his government will have no end. His throne continuing to expand upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. 
wonderful message of the coming of Jesus Christ. 9 verse 8, the Lord sent a word against Jacob and has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. So again, he's now referring to the northern tribes who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him, spur on his enemies, Assyrians before the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So this great catastrophe that's going to come upon the northern tribes, this judgment that's going to be in place, the arrogance that they have as they've already experienced the first waves of destruction. And the Lord is predicting that when they receive the first full level of destruction, they're going to sort of rise up out of the rubble and say, well, that was nothing. You know, we'll just rebuild. Yeah, you destroyed everything we had, you know, our sycamores and our walls, but we'll just plant better trees and build bigger walls is their attitude. And God is saying, you're going to be destroyed. There's not going to be anything left of you when I'm done. Now, at this point, I would take a sideline here. There is a minister in Brooklyn, New York, by the name of Jonathan Kahn. And he has a number of different teachings uh, about this that uh, he has put out. And let me say, there are some interesting things that he has discovered and written about, but simultaneously, he's a false teacher. You want to avoid him at all cost. So Jonathan Kahn, uh, any of his teachings, his writings, uh, his sermons, I would encourage you to have nothing to do with them at all. You know, there, there are some interesting points, but more of what it's going to do is just confuse you. You're going to end up having to sort through a larger pile of rubbish in order to find a few interesting nuggets along the way. So just with that one, throw the baby out with the bathwater. You'll be better off. 9.13, for the people do not turn to him who strike them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. As God is disciplining them, they aren't turning to him. Therefore, the Lord will cut off the head and tail from Israel. In a minute, he's going to explain that. Palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. The prophet should be the head. The prophet should be the one who's lending the conscience and teaching. And instead, you know, what do we say today? The tail wagging the dog, right? This is what the people want to think. This is what the people want taught to them. This is what the people want. So the false teachers, the false prophets, that's what they're giving, right? What they're, what the false teachers are going to be saying at this point in history is, you know, we trust in God. We will not be defeated. Let us rise up together. Let us build walls. Let us replant our trees. You know, we'll overcome our enemies when ruin is going to come upon them. So he's going to cut off the head, the elders, who should know better, and the tale, the prophets who are following what they want them to say. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those 
who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God isn't going to diminish what's coming, even though there are the fatherless and the widows amongst them. Judgment is going to come. 9.18, for wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briar and the thorns and kindle in the thicket of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up. The people shall be as fuel for fire. No man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, shall devour on the left hand, not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. He explains that. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim. Ephraim, Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. So all of these tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Judah, you know, of uh, Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, they're going to be attacking one another. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So even though Great destruction. We're going to read the first four verses in chapter 10 because it is part of this. But even though we have all this great destruction and wrath that is coming, and you would think that the civil war and infighting would be the last thing on their mind, right? They're being attacked from outside in Assyria. They should band together and defend themselves against their coming invaders. And instead, in the midst, they're attacking one another. They're tearing apart the very fiber of Israel itself. So 10 verse 1, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What? Will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your glory? If you have violated my foundational principles of love and justice, who do you think you're going to get help from when you are experiencing the worst calamity of your history? If you've turned against me, where else do you have to turn? It's a very logical question for the Lord to ask. Look at verse 4. Without me, without me, interesting point he makes here. They shall bow down among the prisoners. Not even just to be prisoners. They're going to be humiliated. This was the, the practice of the Assyrians. Strip all of their captives naked. You know, they would lead them away in torturous methods so that humiliation was, you know, the the uh, norm in their circumstances. You're going to be bowed down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. For all this is anger is not turned away. The idea is even though all of this calamity has come, God isn't satisfied at this point. You know, this you, you see... 
uh, you know, certain levels of uh, punishment that that come upon uh, children, even. And the idea of, you know, you warn them, you spank them, I don't know what, you give them time out, and there, you know, finally comes a point where, you know, it doesn't matter how much whining, how much crying, you're going to get the full level of punishment here is what God is saying. You know, you're, you're looking at it like, okay, enough is enough. You're telling us, you know, fire, destruction, war, civil war. God is saying, even for all of that, I'm not going to be quenched in the process. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to say, okay, I've spanked you enough. He's not going to stop in the process. He's going to deliver the full weight of his hand. And that's what he says. His hand is stretched out still without me in verse 4. All God needs to do to bring punishment is to remove his hand of protection. Without me. You don't want, oh, you don't, oh, you don't want me. Okay. Right. Th- think about you know, Israel and all you've read, and then think about our nation and its rejection of God. You know, the degree to which, you know, we could talk about it is endless, but, you know, 1963, this nation kicks God out of the government school systems, right? M- many people that I know grew up starting the day Praying to Jesus Christ in the classroom and reading from the Word of God in the government school systems. Not in Catholic school or private school. That, that was the government's school. 1963, reject God. Throw God out of the school. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of prayer from the public school system. From 1963 to 1973, there's a 500% Increase in violent crime in America. And everybody's standing around going, what happened? What happened? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners and they shall fall among the slain. You reject God, all you're left with is the devourer who wants to come, right? All you're left with is our enemy at that point. God alone, right? How many times have you heard me rail on and on? When the tornado falls, that's not the the act of God. The act of God is when God averts the problem, when he stops the calamity from taking place, when he steers the hurricane back out into the ocean. When it hits shore, that's just because we're without God. It isn't an act of God catastrophe and calamity in my life or nationally or internationally. Calamity is being without God. That's where the world is. John chapter 10, verse 10, I'll leave you with this, says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. If we are suffering Nationally, if we are suffering individually, then it is because we are without God. That, that's the only reason. Job is that rare example of someone who is suffering because he's with God. 
And then the suffering is lifted and he's profoundly blessed. Everybody looks at their circumstances, though, you know, I'm suffering this, you know, I'm just going to go through Job's trials. No, no, for the most part, when we're going through the suffering, it's because we're not cooperating with God. Turning our back on God only leads to one outcome, pain, punishment, judgment. That's what comes from these things. Submission to the Lord, oh, what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. We were designed by God to be worshipers. We're going to worship and serve something. You're going to. If you are not wholeheartedly sold out on worshiping and serving Jesus Christ, then you're going to be wholeheartedly sold out in worshiping and serving something else. You, you can only worship and serve. That's how you were designed. The most cruel master you can ever serve is self. Self. That's the most wicked of masters. Self. You don't even have to turn and become a Satanist. You know, I, I guess, you know, I've said that many times too. By serving self, you are a Satanist. Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible, and he said, you know, do what thou wilt, thus shall be the whole of the law. Right? We have, we have ten commandments in the Scripture. We have many laws recorded in the Word of God. There is one law for the Satanist. Do whatever you want. That's it. Do what thou wilt. Thus shall be the whole of the law. Do whatever you want. That's, that's the core of Satanism. We were born onto planet Earth as hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool Satanists. Doing whatever we wanted to. Many of us have gone all the way down that road. Just pursue self. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. I'm free. No, you're not. You're a slave. You're a slave to your sin. How much better to actually look across all the possibilities of masters and choose Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, to say that is what I want in a master and to willfully bow your heart to him. That's a rewarding thing. Without him, they shall bow down amongst the prisoners and fall among the slain. It's not, you know what, not only is that not what I want for myself, it's not what I want for my children or my grandchildren or any subsequent generation. I want them to experience the great blessing of the Lord. May we be men and women who show them by example how to surrender ourselves to him. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up at verse 5 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray.